So um, last week, we kind of went through the chronology of the, from the Exodus, and we looked at Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. And we came through the 40 years into the wilderness where Joshua leads the children of Israel into the promised land and the land's divided and then Joshua dies and the judges begin to rule Israel. And uh, we went through the time of the judges and we kind of uh, highlighted Gideon, we highlighted Samson. And then uh, in 1095 BC, we see where Saul is anointed king of Israel. And then 10 years later, in 1085 BC, David is born to Jesse. And remember, David is the grandson of, well, the great-grandson of Boaz. Boaz begot Obed, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. And so as we look at this timeline, we see that as we're reading the Bible, some of these things are happening uh, simultaneously. They're, they're maybe a lot closer together than we think, or maybe they're farther apart than we think. So if you think about it, when Saul is anointed king 10 years into his reign, little David is born, who will eventually uh, take the throne from Saul. In 1063 BC, Saul is rejected by God, and David is anointed king by the prophet Samuel. We're going to see in tonight's uh, study that this is the first of three anointings that David has. He was anointed king three times. And um, as David grows up, and you kind of know the story. David goes out to battle. Uh, he goes to check on his brothers who are with the armies of Israel. They're facing Goliath, and Goliath is challenging them. And David goes, goes, what's the deal? Why isn't anyone brave enough to go fight this giant? And so you know the story David does. He kills the giant, and Saul takes note. And David becomes famous in the eyes of Israel, in the eyes of Saul. Uh, God, the Bible says God sends an evil spirit to torment Saul. And David is brought to Saul to play music for him because that's the only thing that will bring solace or, or comfort to Saul. So God afflicts Saul with an evil spirit on purpose. And David is brought in to play his music to soothe Saul. And eventually, David becomes friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. David becomes a great warrior in Saul's army. The women of Israel sing, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands. And Saul becomes insanely jealous and seeks to kill David. And so David leaves. He has to flee Saul's household. He has to flee his household. And he is running, living in the wilderness, running from Saul. 
While David is running from Saul, Samuel dies. So Samuel anointed David king when David was a little boy, but Samuel never saw David actually rule as king. And so before David is anointed king and made king of Judah, Samuel dies. David is still running from Saul. Um, So this is where we're going to pick it up here in 1055 B.C., um, you may have the timelines. I made copies for you. Uh, they're, they're, they're kind of big. They're not real detailed. So um, you can follow this. So in 1055 BC, Saul is confronted by the Philistines who plan to invade Israel. David has been pretending to be allied with the Philistines. Remember, he's running from Saul and he goes to the Philistine city. And he pretends to be mad. And he's drooling all over himself. And the Philistine king's like, why have you brought this madman to me? What what am I going to do with him? Um, Well, eventually David uh, goes back to the Philistines. He's with them. And he convinces the Philistine uh, king that he has left Israel. He's against Israel because Saul's been trying to kill him. And the, Israel, and the Philistine king thinks, wow, this is our opportunity. Israel's great hero who has killed so many Philistines has now turned against his own people and is with us. And so he's pretending to be with the Philistines. And as the Philistines are getting ready to go face Israel, David leaves their ranks prior to this battle. This happens to be the battle where Saul is killed. So when, when David departs from the Philistines, remember he's going with them and the Philistine king says, you can't come with us because the lords of the Philistines don't trust you. And David supposedly has been going out and raiding Israel and plundering Judah. But in reality, David had been going out and plundering the enemies of Judah. And in making the the Philistines think that he was plundering Judah, but he really wasn't. And so they're getting ready to go to battle. And David doesn't want to fight his people. And so the plan works to perfection. And the Philistine lords say, David can't come. And so the king says, just go back to the camp. You You can't come with us. Well, it just so happens that when the Philistines go to face Israel or face Judah, well, it's Israel. The the kingdom is not divided yet. So we have a unified kingdom. And so when they go to face uh, Israel, David is not with them as they prepare to battle Israel. When Saul finds out the Philistines have come to invade his land. Remember, he's been busy trying to find David, trying to kill David. And now the Philistines have come to invade his land, and he is troubled. And so what does he do? He seeks out the witch at Endor. Because Samuel is dead, and he doesn't have an advisor, and he's lost... So he goes to the witch at Endor to see if she can conjure up Samuel 
to see if Samuel will tell him what he needs to do. Now, Samuel, remember, has already told him on two different occasions recorded in the Bible that the, the kingdom has been ripped from you. It's going to be given to another. And Samuel made it very clear, the Lord had made it very clear that the kingdom was going to be removed from Saul. And this was part of the reason why he was trying to kill David because he realized that David was going to be the one that would take the kingdom. And so he goes and the witch at Endor conjures up a spirit, um, whether it was Saul or not, uh, whatever or whoever she conjures up tells, Sam, tells Saul in no uncertain terms that he and his children would die, that, that they're going to die in battle. And so, sure enough, the Philistines defeat Israel. Saul and Jonathan die in battle. David hears of it. And then David is anointed king by the men of Judah at Hebron. And David ruled Judah for seven and a half years from, from Hebron. Now, David has not been anointed yet by all of Israel, but by by the tribe of Judah, by his men. He's anointed king. Saul is dead. So that's in 1055 B.C. In 1048 B.C., now you can, you can read about this in 1 Samuel chapter 28, verses 5 and 6 and verse 19, give us the account of Saul seeking out the witch at Endor and everything. And, and it's there in Samuel where you see all of this happening. Then seven years later, in 1048 B.C., David is anointed king of all Israel. So in that seven years, Saul's son seeks to take the kingship. There's conflict between those loyal to David and those loyal to Saul. There's seven years of conflict involving Judah and uh, remember, when the Philistines killed Saul, um, they beheaded, well, they took his body, him and Jonathan's body, and they, they hung their bodies up as trophies and uh, desecrated their bodies. And then we're going to see later on that, you know, David sends people to go get those bodies so they can have a proper burial. But there's seven years of conflict between Judah and those loyal to David with, and the other tribes of Israel. Remember, there's 12 tribes. But Judah and Benjamin end up being the two southern tribes that comprised what was left of the kingdom of Israel. When we get further into this, we're going to see that the 10 tribes in the north were dispersed, taken captive by the Assyrians. But we're not there yet. We still have a unified kingdom, and David has just begun ruling Israel. And so now, seven years after he was anointed king at Hebron by the, by the men of Judah, uh, all of the tribes of Israel come together. Uh, some men from the tribe of Benjamin go and they assassinate the king, um, the guy who is, is the king. And uh, he's a descendant of Saul and even though they thought they were doing David a favor, and they come back to David and they say, hey, we assassinated uh, the king uh, and we did you a favor. And David's like, no, you didn't do me a favor. 
that was, uh, that was the king. And remember, David had multiple opportunities to murder Saul, who was trying to murder David. And Saul and David would never touch Saul. And he said, you know, I'm not going to touch God's anointed. When God wants Saul removed from the kingdom, God will remove him in his way. And so these men, thinking they did David a favor, didn't really know the character of David, went and assassinated the king. And when they come back and give word to David and say, hey, we've taken care of your, your enemy. You can now be king over all Israel. David um, has the men executed for the crime of murder, and rightly so. But as a result of that, all Israel comes together. And so the captains, the Bible says the captains and the elders and all the, of all the tribes came together at Hebron and anointed David king over all Israel. So this is seven and a half years after the death of Saul and Jonathan. And so David had been anointed by Samuel when he was a young boy. David was anointed by the men of Judah at Hebron after Saul's death. And now David once again was anointed king of Israel, all Israel, by all the tribes, by all the leaders at Hebron. This was the third and final time that David was anointed king. Just out of curiosity, I've, I've not thought this through, but if, do you have any thoughts on have you, did you realize that David was anointed king three times? I, I'll be honest with you, I never, I never put that together, that he was anointed king three times. I have to believe there's something significant about David being anointed king three times. Um, any thoughts on that? Maybe make a note of that. Ponder that. And let's maybe talk about that next week after you have a week to think about the significance of David being anointed king three times. Whatever the significance is, the significance is related to Christ. Because who was Jesus called? He was the son of David, which was a title of his kingship. The son of David, when, when Jesus was called the son of David, who, what pops out in your mind? Who called Jesus the son of David? Y'all remember? The blind guy. Man, I love that song. You sing that song. I love that song. And blind Bartimaeus is sitting there on the road to Jericho, and he says, son of David, cries out. He's blind. He can't see. He just... He hears. He's heard sitting there in his blindness. He's heard the talk. He knows Jesus is passing by. And he cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. And the people say, shut up, blind Bartimaeus. Don't you know? The Messiah's passing by. This important guy's passing by. What are you doing disturbing everything? And Jesus stops. And he goes and he heals the blind man. But the blind man calls him the son of David, which is a title of his kingship, his heir. He is the heir to the throne of David. And even the blind man could see who Jesus was. 
when those with real eyes could not see. So don't think just because you have eyes to see, you can see. Because sometimes your blindness has nothing to do with how good your vision is. So David was anointed king the third and final time there by all Israel at Hebron. And then David goes and he conquers the Jebusite city of what? Jerusalem. So at this time, in 1048 B.C., Jerusalem is not a city of the Jews. Jerusalem was a Jebusite stronghold. And David goes and he conquers Jerusalem and he makes Jerusalem the capital of his kingdom. And David reigned over Israel for 33 years from Jerusalem. So he reigned a total of 40 years, but 33 of those years he reigned from Jerusalem, starting in 1048 B.C. Then in 1045 B.C., David moves the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Well, where was the Ark before that? Well, before that, the ark was in Kirith-Jerim, and it had been there for 20 years. It had been there for more than that, actually. When Samson, remember when Samson defeated the Philistines? Well, after Samson defeated the Philistines, and remember how that happened? Samson was captured because he, his weakness was his love of women, and he, Delilah wore him down, and she finally told, him that he told her the truth about his strength, and he gets captured, and they gouge out his eyes, and so they think, you know, they don't think about his hair growing back, and then they bring him in um, at this big festival, and he says, put me between these two pillars so I can rest between these two pillars, and he says, Lord, please give me the strength. Let this be the last act of glory for you. And the Bible says that the strength of Samson returned and he pushed the pillars down. And it says Samson killed more people, killed more Philistines in his death than he did his whole life. Well, that defeat of the Philistines by Samson gave Israel courage. And they decide they're going to go out against the Philistines. The only problem is they got beat. And in getting beat, the Ark of the Covenant got captured. And the Philistines take it. And you remember that story. It's, it's, it's somewhat comical. Because everywhere the Philistines take the Ark, these horrible things like boils break out. And I know it's kind of, it's kind of uh, sounds kind of gross, but hemorrhoids. This is literally what uh, God... God gave the Philistines horrible hemorrhoids. So bad that, that they, they couldn't function. And they said, we got to get this ark out of here. And, and they said, the way we're going to know if this is from the God of the ark of the Israelites or whether this is something else is we're going to put this ark on a cart pulled by a cow that's never done anything and, and if the ark goes back to Israel, we're going to know that God's afflicting us with these tumors and boils and all these horrible things that were happening. 
these plagues. Well, sure enough, that's what happened. And so when they realized that was the case, they had made golden, uh, golden hemorrhoids and golden rats and golden, they put all these things back on the ark with, uh, back on the cart with the ark as a sacrifice, as an offering to the God of Israel. And when the ark went back, it went back to Kirith Jerem. That's where it ended up, and it remained there for 20 years. It was at Shiloh where the tabernacle was. And so you have the tabernacle at Shiloh, but you have the ark at Kirith Jerem. Now, David, in 1045 BC, decides he's going to move the ark to Jerusalem. So David, while the tabernacle is in Shiloh, David erects a new tabernacle in Jerusalem, and then he calls for the ark to be brought to Jerusalem. This is, uh, this is when they put the ark on the cart, and the guys are driving it, and they uh, hit a rock, and the ark is getting ready to fall on the ground, and the guy reaches out to stabilize the ark, and the moment he touches it, God strikes him dead. And David is angry. And God tells David, if you're going to do it, do it right, basically. And so the ark then goes to the house of Obed-Edom for three months while David regroups and, and figures out the right way to move the ark to Jerusalem. And so all of that happened in 1045 B.C., and at the same time, David composes Psalm 68. Let's look at Psalm 68. Moving the ark to Jerusalem was, uh, Psalm 68 is about this. And David composes this psalm for this occasion of moving the ark to Jerusalem. Psalm 68 is the glory of God in his goodness to Israel. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, a song. So, we always say this. We have a songbook right in the middle of our Bible. It's called the book of Psalms. It's literally the songbook of God's people. Uh, it's why we are attempting to sing more psalms, because this is why this book is here. Um, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, a song. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. Let those also who hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. Now I want to stop for just a moment as we're reading this. Do you notice anything just about those first two lines of this psalm? Do you notice anything about this psalm that may sound out of character for a lot of churches you might go to today? I mean, how often do you hear churches singing and praying, let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, let those who hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish in the presence of God. Well, that just doesn't sound nice, does it? I mean, why would we, why would we sing that? But that's a song David composed. 
And these are the kinds of songs, these are the kinds of psalms many churches today won't deal with because that's not politically correct. That's not woke enough. And it's certainly not nice enough. But this is what David is writing and singing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about the enemies of God, which were his enemies, which are your enemies. Verse 3, but let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before God. Yes, let them rejoice exceedingly. Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. By his name, Yah, and rejoice before him. A father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. God sets the solitary in families. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity. But the rebellious dwell in a dry land. Oh God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth shook. The heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God. The God of Israel, you, O oh God, sent a plentiful rain, whereby you confirmed your inheritance when it was weary. Your congregation dwelt in it. What was his inheritance? It's his people. We are the inheritance of the Lord. Your congregation dwelt in it. You, O oh God, provided from your goodness for the poor. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those who proclaimed it. King of armies flee. They flee. And she who remains at home divides the spoil. Though you lie down among the sheepfolds, you will be like the wings of a dove covered with silver and her feathers with yellow gold. When the Almighty scattered kings in it, it was white as snow in Zalman. A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountains of Bashan. Why do you fume with envy, you mountains of many peaks? This is the mountain which God desires to dwell in. Yes, the Lord will dwell in it forever. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. The Lord is among them as in Sinai, in the holy place. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men from, every, from, from the rebellious that the Lord God might dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits, the God of our salvation. Our God is the God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong escapes from death. And God will wound the head of his enemies, the hairy scalp of the one who still goes on in his trespasses. The Lord said, I will bring back from Bashan, I will bring them back from the depths of the sea, that your foot may crush them in blood, and the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from the, your enemies. You have, seen your, you have seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers went before the players on instruments followed after. Among them were the maidens playing timbrels. 
Bless God in the congregations. The Lord from the fountain of Israel. There is little Benjamin, their leader, the princes of Judah and their company, the princes of Zebulun and the princes of Naphtali. Your God has commanded your strength. Strength, O God, that you have done for us because your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring present to you. Rebuke the beast of the reeds and hurt the herds of bulls with the calves of the peoples till everyone submits himself with pieces of silver. Scatter the peoples who delight in war. Envoys will come out of Egypt. Ethiopia will quickly stretch out her hands to God. Sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth. Oh, sing praises to the Lord, to him who rides on the earth of heavens, which were of old. Indeed, he sends out his voice, a mighty voice, ascribe strength to God. His excellence is over Israel, and his strength is in the clouds. Oh God, you are awesome. You are more awesome than your holy place. The God of Israel is he who gives strength and power to his people. Blessed be God. So this was the psalm that David composed. And in this time of Israel's history, David had victory over his enemies. Wherever David went, Whoever David faced, God gave David and Israel victory. They even went as far as the Euphrates River and defeated the Syrians and the Assyrians and pushed them back across the Euphrates River. And if you, if you, if you look at a map, and I'm sorry I didn't make a copy of a map, but if you go and you look at a map of the Middle East and you see where Jerusalem is and then you see where the Euphrates River is up in where Babylon is, or modern-day Iraq, you'll see how far David's expansion went and the rule of his kingdom and the control so that he had, he didn't have peace, but he had victory on every side against his enemies. And David is praising God in this psalm because God had given him that victory and God had uh, given him the grace to defeat his enemies. And so eventually David gets it right and three months later he brings the ark back and puts it in Jerusalem in the tabernacle. Then ten years later David commits adultery with Bathsheba. The account in Scripture says in the time of year when kings go to battle, David remained in Jerusalem. Now, why do you think David didn't go to battle? Why do you think David may have stayed in Jerusalem instead of going to battle with his men? Could David have grown complacent? Or maybe he's had so much success, so much victory, he didn't see much point because his men could take care of it. They didn't need him. And I believe that David grew comfortable. Yes. David, like us, in times of blessing, 
Yes, exactly right. That's exactly right. He took for granted that he would be victorious. And for 10 years plus, he was. And I think what this, what this shows us is, here is David, a man after God's own heart, who took his position and the blessing of God for granted. I don't think David stayed back because he planned to commit adultery with Bathsheba. If you read the account in the scripture, uh, it was not something David planned, but David saw her and took his privilege as king. But if David would have been where he should have been, that would not have happened. If David would not have taken for granted the blessings of God, that would not have happened. So his sin of adultery with Bathsheba resulted in the conception of a child. And because of the conception of that child, David tried to cover it by bringing Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, back. But Uriah was such an honorable man, he would not go sleep in his house with his wife and take that um, comfort and convenience while his men were out on the battlefield sleeping out on the ground. He said, God forbid, I would not do that. To dishonor you, my king, and to dishonor my men. And so David, next night, tries getting him drunk, and still Uriah doesn't go to his house. So he sends Uriah back to the battle with a note for Joab, the commander of his army, and says, put Uriah up front in the hottest part of the battle and make sure that he falls. And that's exactly what happened. David, in essence, murdered Uriah to cover his sin. And then you know the story of Nathan the prophet who comes and tells the story about the guy who had the precious little lamb, only, you know, just poor guy, and, and uh, this rich person who had everything comes and takes the little lamb from the poor guy, and David says, that man deserves death. And Nathan says, you are that man. But God in his grace did not give David death. He gave David grace, but the judgment for David's sin against God struck the child born to him. God struck the child born to him in Bathsheba, and the child died. That's what the scripture says. God struck the child. Not because the child uh, did anything wrong. The child went to be with the Lord. And we know that because David says, the child can't come to me, but one day I will go to the child. Remember, David, this was in our Bible reading this week. David, upon the death of the child, or while the child, when God strikes the child, and this is what the prophet told him, and when the child falls ill, David knows this is from the Lord. God has struck my child, but I'm going to pray and fast to see whether God might have mercy and spare the child. And the Bible says for seven days, David fasts and prays, but at the end of seven days, the child dies. And the servants of David, David is so distraught with grief over this child, the servants, knowing David is distraught, get word that the child has died, and they're like, what do we do? How do we tell him? 
We're afraid he's going to do something to himself. He's so distraught. David sees them talking, and he says, is the child dead? And they said, yes, the child is dead. And the Bible says David gets up, and basically what David did was consecrate himself. The Bible says David got up, he washed himself and put on clean clothes, he ate something, and then he went and worshiped the Lord. And his servants were baffled and said, why, why are you doing this? For seven days you fasted and prayed while the child was alive, but now that the child is dead, you wash yourself, put on clean clothes, and eat. And David, this is when David says, the Lord has made his decision, in essence. The child is dead. The child cannot come back to me, but I will one day go to the child. And what was, what was David's reaction? What was David's action as a result of the child's death? The Bible says he worshiped God, which tells us something really important for us today, that in the face of death, we have lots of reactions, but the reaction we should have is to worship God, just like David did. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, Ahab. Yeah, he did. He absolutely did. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. When uh, when David worshipped God after an extended period of being dependent upon God in prayer, mm -hmm. uh, evidenced by his sackcloth and, and mourning, uh, because we speculate that he was complacent. The question that I would like us to consider is, uh, we know that's why, well, we speculate that's why he didn't go to war. Right. Like he should have because he was complacent with all the blessings of God. He didn't depend on it, it appears. But my question that I'd like us to consider, since that was the result of the affliction mm -hmm. and the consequence to his sin, was why was he if our speculation is anywhere correct, why did he not go to war? Why, why did he not obey God since that was the tradition and the routine of a king? Why was it that he was complacent? What caused that aspect? Because we become complacent. Right. So what was it? Well, this is the, this is, you know, this is where we have a hard time reconciling the sovereignty of God with our, our sinful choices. So uh, if we think that God was not sovereign over those actions, then we don't really believe in the God of the Bible. Uh, David absolutely made a choice to stay home when he should be out to battle. He absolutely made a choice to sin against God. And so we read Psalm 68, which was the psalm David wrote in, in moving the ark to Jerusalem. Psalm 51 is the psalm David writes as a result of his sin with Bathsheba. And it's a psalm of repentance where God, uh, David cries out to God for forgiveness and, and confesses. And, and this is why, uh, you know, in your notes here, uh, 
in 1034 as judgment for David's sin against God. I mean, David sinned against a lot of people. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against a lot of people. But what David says in, in his confession to God is, says, God, I have sinned against you. And so above all of this, and this is why we're going through this timeline of history, because God is not just working in the little area of the Middle East we call Israel. While this is all happening, God is working all over the world, raising up cultures, raising up peoples, raising up kingdoms that we don't even know the names of. We don't even, you know, there is not a lot going on in world history right now that we are typically aware of, unless you are like a real history nerd or something. You know, there's just, you know, not, not the big things happening. But the sovereignty of God was absolutely at play here. Was Solomon sovereignly ordained by God to be born of Bathsheba and David? Yes, he was. Was Jesus sovereignly ordained to come through David and Solomon and all of the other descendants? Yes, he was. And I think it's, I think it's, um, I think there's a lot here, you know, here's where we can really get in the weeds and talk about some interesting things. But at the very least, I think the reality of what happened to David with Bathsheba and the fact that Jesus, the lineage of Jesus' birth, not only has uh, a woman who, like Bathsheba, but you've got Tamar who committed incest with her father-in-law because her father-in-law would not do the righteous thing and give her a, 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 one of his sons to produce a child because the law demanded it. And she had to pretend to be a prostitute to lay with Judah in order to have a son. And Jesus Christ came to that son. Rahab the harlot in Jericho. Jesus descended from her. What is God showing us in working in these ways? He's showing us and helping us to understand that in our falling down, in our failures, in our own sin, we are not beyond God's grace. That God sovereignly chooses to use situations like this, to, to bring situations like this about in His sovereignty, in His grace, and we should learn from these. You bring up so many things. Things are sparking. Um, uh, what I wanted to go back to concerning David and that Psalm 51 mm -hmm. is what we're studying now in worship. Right. Uh, and how that's a daily situation. Yeah. And in and, and our recitation of the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, God wants us to be daily dependent on Yes. Swine talks about daily bread. That's all the substance. Yeah. All the substance. But David said in Psalm 51 at the end that God doesn't want our offering right. and all these sacrifices. What he wants is the contrite heart and the broken A broken, heart. yeah. And, yeah. And that's what David came to. He, he probably was doing everything overtly. Yeah. Uh, during those uh, years of blessing, mm -hmm. giving sure, the offering, sure. giving the sacrifice, but his heart was not 
broken and spiritually mm-hmm. broken and contrite and dependent. Yes. And we know he was doing all the right things outwardly. Like that. Yeah. That's why it's so important of the study mm-hmm. of worship that we're going through right now. Yeah. Great point. Anything else? Any other thoughts here? All right. So that judgment falls on David, falls on his child, but we know the child is safe and secure with the Lord from the words, the inspired words of David. We see God working in, in, in extending grace to David when David did not deserve God's grace, just as we do not deserve God's grace. But God gives us what we do not deserve in spite of ourselves. Two years after this, <clears throat> Amnon rapes his sister Tamar. And then two years after that, Absalom kills his brother Amnon for the rape of Tamar, his sister. As a result of Absalom murdering Amnon, Amnon, he is exiled from Jerusalem. And he has been exiled from Jerusalem for three years. In 1027 BC, Absalom returns to Jerusalem after three years in uh, exile. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. Yes, he returns after three years in exile. So Absalom murders Amnon. David is angry, and Absalom is exiled from Jerusalem, and he's gone for three years. David has no contact with him. He's gone. And then Joab arranges for this woman of Tekoa to go to David and give him a scenario. Joab creates this whole script and says, go to David, and this is what, you need, what, what, you, what I want you to tell him. And so she goes through this whole thing, this scenario about these two brothers who are at odds with one another. And basically, David answers his own question, and the brother should be brought back. And then the woman, you know, uh, says something to David. I can't remember exactly what she said, but then David goes, Did, is Joab involved in this? And the woman says, yes, truly, Joab is involved in this. King, you are wise and you know all things. And so David realizes that basically Joab is using this woman to make David realize that you need to deal with your exiled son. Just, just pretending like he doesn't exist is, is, not, is not the right thing. And so they bring Absalom back to Jerusalem in 1027. But David still is not dealing with the situation. Two years into Absalom being returned to Jerusalem, he has still not seen his father. He has still not communicated with his father. And so in order to get someone's attention, it's not just little children that act out. In order to get someone's attention, Absalom sets fire to Joab's barley field at the time of harvest. Now what Usher tells us is, this was at harvest. So Joab has not harvested his barley yet, but it's, it's, it's getting ready to be harvested. So with the harvest of the barley, we know this is right around the time of, of, um, 
of Pentecost, of Passover, um, in first fruits, because first fruits was when they waved the, the first barley sheaves. So this is somewhere around the time of Passover, Absalom sets fire to Joab's barley field. The next year is a year of jubilee. It's a sabbatical year, which means, or it's a sabbatical year, which means that Joab can't plant a crop next year. So now his barley crop's been burned up, and he's not going to get to plant a crop next year because, and Absalom knew this. And so Joab is furious. Well, as a result of this, he gets Joab's attention. Joab gets David's attention, and Joab, uh, or Absalom, is given an audience with his father, finally. It doesn't go well. Um, too much water under the bridge, and there's not a reconciliation here. And so a year later, in 1024 B.C., Absalom rebels against David. And this was kind of a slow progression. So once he came back to Jerusalem, Absalom, the Bible tells us, was a very handsome young man. Uh, the people liked him. And he took advantage of that, and he would sit in the gates, and he would begin to counsel the people. So instead of going in and seeking the king's counsel, Absalom would intercept them at the gate, and he would give them wise counsel, and the people began to favor Absalom. And they saw him as a wise man, and once Absalom felt comfortable... He made his move after he had stolen the hearts of God's people. So you can read about this in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 through 6, where Absalom steals the hearts of the people. And then he makes his move, and David is forced to flee from Jerusalem to save his life. And the events that transpire as a result of this were a fulfillment of God's word, Spoken by the prophet Nathan against David. When did, those, when did God speak that word to him? When Nathan, remember, goes to David after the death of the baby. And he gives him this scenario about the, 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 man with the, the poor man with the lamb. And this rich guy who had everything stole the poor man's lamb. And he says, David, you are that man. And David is truly repentant. He writes Psalm 51 as a result of it. But Nathan tells David, because of your sin, the sword will not depart from your house. You notice in Psalm 68, David mentions a temple built in Jerusalem. David had it in his heart to build a temple, but God did not allow David to build that temple because of the blood that was on his hands. And he said, you will not build that house for me, but your son will. And so David is told by Nathan through the word of the Lord that the sin you committed in secret, you, you laid with Bathsheba in secret and hid it, but someone's going to come and take your kingdom. They're going to try to, they're going to take your place and they're going to do it openly. And so when Absalom comes, David flees. Absalom goes to the palace and he gets the concubines of David, and he goes up on the, on the roof of the palace. And in front of everyone, he shows everyone that he is laying with his father's concubines. 
it was an it was an act to it was an act of complete and utter disrespect so that the people of Jerusalem would lose respect for David and and this is what happened and David knows that if he does not get away from Absalom he and his entire household will be killed Absalom will, will annihilate him and so uh, it's a great story. You should read it there in 2 Samuel. Um, it's, a, it's a wonderful story. And so um, long story short, Absalom does not succeed. Because, again, why? Because of the sovereignty of God. Everything in the natural says Absalom should have at that moment, taken the kingdom and never looked back. But God caused Absalom to listen to counsel that was meant to give David an advantage. And he closed the ears of Absalom to the wise counsel that was actually given to him. And the counselor, it was, um, who was it? Abinathar? Ahithophel? Was it Ahithophel? I don't remember which one it was. Um, but when he realized that, you might look up in your Bible and tell me, because I don't remember. But when he realized, he gave, he, gave Dave, he gave Absalom the right counsel. And David's, David's spy there in the court, when they said, what do you say? And he says, well, this is what I say. You know David is a mighty man of war. And he's going to be like a wounded bear. And if you go after him right now, it's going to be, you know, he's already put everyone away. He's going to be ready for you. And so he says, you should wait. Assemble all Israel together and then go after David. And Absalom says, I like that counsel. And the guy who gave him really the wise counsel, the Bible says he went home, got his affairs in order, and hung himself. Why did he hang himself? Because he knew, you just listened to the wrong counsel. David will defeat you. David will come back and retake the throne. And in the day that David retakes the throne, I'm toast because I sided with Absalom. So I'm out with David. I will be killed. I'll be hung one way or the other. So I'm just going to go ahead and do it right now and get it over with. And make sure my family's taken care of. That's... that's Literally what the Bible tells us happened. And sure enough, David, uh, Absalom is defeated and uh, killed by Joab. Um, and David, uh, we won't go into that, but he goes into a deep depression again because of the death of Absalom. 1023, a year after the rebellion uh, by Absalom, Forty years after David was anointed king by Samuel, Absalom takes possession of his father's kingdom. And though David is still the anointed king, Absalom is ultimately defeated and killed by Joab. And then David is restored to his throne. So it was a short rebellion. David's restored to his throne 40 years after he was first anointed by Samuel. But he never stopped being king. Absalom never got the throne. He never got the crown, though he got close. Then 
Six years later, David takes a census against the Lord's will, which resulted in God's judgment falling upon Israel. Why is this significant? Because it was, at that in, it was during that time that David cries out to God and says, Oh God, I'm sorry, what should I do? And God gives him three choices. And he says, you can, um, you can fall uh, in, under the hand of your enemies for a certain period of time. You can, um, you can suffer, I can't remember what it was, the plague for a certain period of time, or you can, you can suffer under God's judgment. And he said, out of all those choices, I would much rather uh, fall on the mercies of God. So whatever your judgment is, God, I'll take it. And the Bible says God goes through Israel, and, and, and basically the angel of death kills like so many tens of thousands of people. And David goes to the threshing floor of Ornan, and Ornan is there. You know, Ornan is a guy I'd like to meet one day. Because the angel of the Lord is there slaying people. And Ornan is there with his oxen threshing grain on his threshing floor. And David comes running up and he sees the angel of death. Maybe Ornan couldn't see it, I don't know. But he sees the angel of death and he says, Ornan, he said, I need this threshing floor. And Ornan says, I'll give it to you, king. He says, no, I need to buy it from you. And he says, no. I'll give it to you. And he says, I don't have time to haggle with you. I won't offer anything to God that has not cost me anything. And so he, he buys the threshing floor. He slaughters the ox. And he offers a burnt offering right there to God on that threshing floor. Now, what is significant about that threshing floor? Well, that is the site on which the temple was built. Now, here again, if you want to just see all of these things as disconnected events, think about connecting the dots here. I mean, there's a lot of other ways David could have, de could have decided on a, a place to build the temple, but it was in the midst of this judgment he's under, and, and it, this is the very place that the temple is eventually built. In 1015, in David's old age, his son, Adonijah, seeing his father on his sickbed, close to death, takes it upon himself with some of his allies to claim the throne. Bathsheba realizes if Adonijah takes the throne, Solomon's out. And God had promised, and David had promised, that Solomon would be king. And so they act quickly, and uh, they tell David, Bathsheba and Nathan, and David orders his son Solomon to be anointed king over Israel. And he was. And then David assembles all the leaders of Israel. He exhorts them to fear and to worship the Lord only. He commits into Solomon's hands the plans for the temple and all the money that had been raised. And then they have this... Uh, they have... God just puts it upon the hearts of the people and they begin to bring um, treasure and gold for the construction of the temple. Solomon was anointed king the second time. 
So he was anointed king quickly at that time, but then there came a time when he was anointed the second time in an official ceremony with everybody, and Zadok was made the high priest. And then after instructing Solomon and the people, David died when David had ruled Israel for 40 years. In 1014 B.C., Solomon marries the daughter of the Egyptian pharaoh. Maybe the beginning of his downfall. Uh, in, in our history class, one of the uh, test questions that the kids have is, what was Solomon's downfall? Was it gold? That's what I think all of my students answered. It was gold. Because it seems like gold would be the downfall, perhaps, because the love of money is the root of all evil. But for Solomon, it wasn't gold that was his downfall. It was women. Women was his downfall. In 1013 B.C., Solomon responds to God and chooses wisdom to rule the people of Israel. If you can ask anything, what would you ask? Solomon says, I would ask for wisdom to rule this people. And God gives him wisdom and much, much more. 1012 B.C., the foundation of the temple is laid. In 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, it says, In the 480th year after Israel, after the exodus of Israel from Egypt. So we have a date right there. We have a count. When was the temple foundation laid? 480 years after the exodus. We use this scripture in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, to figure out the timeline of the children of Israel in the Exodus. The treasure's there in the Bible. You just got to look for it. You got to search for it. We're almost done here. 1005 BC, in the 11th year of Solomon's reign, in the eighth month, this is October, November of our calendar, the temple and its furnishings were complete. It took seven years and six months. So in the fourth year of Solomon's reign, he lays the foundation of the temple. In the fourth year, in the eleventh year of Solomon's reign, in the eighth month, he finishes the temple and its furnishings. They were complete. So it took seven years and six months for Solomon to complete the temple and all of its furnishings. But the dedication of the temple did not happen until the fall of the following year. So we know that in 1 Kings, I mean, we see this uh, in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, verse 37. Um, it says that the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, uh, verse, verses 1 through 2, verses 62 through 66. If you read those, you'll see the counting there. The dedication of the temple was postponed until the autumn of the next year. And it says, remember, it was finished in the eighth month. It says in the seventh month, on the eighth day of the seventh month, that is the month of Tishri, that's our September, October, was the dedication of the temple. Now this would have been it tells us the days, the eighth day. What's, what happens on the tenth day of the seventh month in the Jewish calendar? Well, it's the Day of Atonement. 
So on the 10th of Tishri is the Day of Atonement. The temple was dedicated on the 8th. Why the 8th? So if you read in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 62 and 6 through 60, 66, you'll see that there were 14 days of feasting, of celebrating. So atonement is a very solemn day, but if you count from day 8, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, seven days to dedicate the temple, seven days of of, of prayer, seven days of consecration to dedicate the temple. On the 15th of Tishri is the beginning of tabernacles. Tabernacles is a celebratory feast. Atonement, very serious. The only day of the year that Jews are commanded to fast is the 10th of Tishri on the Day of Atonement. On the 15th of Tishri... Same month, five days later, they are commanded to celebrate because their sins have been forgiven. God has, has forgiven them, and now this is a celebratory. So this was strategically planned by Solomon in Israel to dedicate the temple at this time, and they had 14 days dedication and celebration. Then it says, uh, you can read about that. First day on the 8th, Day of Atonement on the 10th, Tabernacles on the 15th. Then it says on the 8th day, the last day of the feast, was a solemn day. So the 8th day, the great day of the feast, is a solemn day. This is the day that Jesus, John chapter 8, Jesus stood up in the temple. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stands up and he says, I am the light of the world. It was on this very same day that Solomon dedicates the temple, the last day of that dedication. It was the very same day, some 1,029 years later, that Jesus stands in the court of the temple and says, I am the light of the world. All right. Now, that's the history we see in the Bible for Israel. What's happening at the very same time? Well, at the very same time the temple is being dedicated, the Mayan dynasties are being raised up in Central America. So by the time we get to 1000 BC, the Mayans have already begun their dynasties, building their cities and establishing that great civilization there in Central America. Perhaps unknown to anyone in the Middle East, or perhaps not. Um, at this time, the Assyrians are ruling Mesopotamia. The Babylonians are there, but they're not the power. They're under the rule of the Assyrians. The Assyrians are ruling everything. They're the dominant power at this time, but in about 400 years, they will not be. But we're not there yet. In 975 B.C., Solomon died when he had reigned 40 years. And Rehoboam, Solomon's son, was made king. And that's where we're going to stop tonight. Sorry, I went over a little bit. We covered a lot. Now, I wanted to get to that point because now when we talk about Rehoboam, 
at Jeroboam. This is when Israel splits, the kingdom splits. This is when you're going to see prophets. Some prophets are called to Israel. Some prophets are called to Judah. Some prophets are called to other places. So during this next period of history, we're going we're to look at the prophets and the kings and what's happening in Israel and what God's doing there. And at the same time, we're going to see great world empires being raised up in God's sovereignty to bring about something, the most awesome thing that has ever happened in the world, bar the physical return of Jesus. Um, it's all being set up for us. So this next stage of history is very crucial to that. All right.